This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Lisa Bauer, Sam Idle, Alice Phelan, and Mazzy, who all recently signed up to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. Alright, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 541 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley author of the book Save Me, Please, and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And our guest today is Philip Plate, author of the book's Bad Astronomy, which takes a skeptical look at magical thinking and conspiracy theories that involve outer space, and Death from the Skies, which explores the many ways that cosmic phenomena could destroy the Earth. He's written for numerous publications, including Discover, Slate, and Sci-Fi Wire. And you can check out his Bad Astronomy newsletter over at badastronomy.substack.com. And in this interview, we'll be discussing his new book, Under Alien Skies, A Sightseer's Guide to the Universe. And now here's our interview with Philip Plate. All right, so we're here with Philip Plate. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. Okay, and so your new book is called Under Alien Skies. So how'd this book come about? <laughs> well, that is literally a long story. Uh, back in the 1990s, I mean, a long time ago, um, I had this idea of writing an article about what cosmic objects would look like if you were up close to them. And the idea being that, you know, I give a lot of talks and write a lot of articles about things like Hubble Space Telescope images of galaxies and gas clouds and all these things. And a very common question I get from the audience is, is this what that object would look like if you were there? And the easy answer to that is no, because, you know, you'd be dead. Uh, hmm. That's just, that's basically true of anywhere you want to go in the universe except Earth. Um, but not being so flippant, the answer is a little more complicated than that. And sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes it's no. And I decided to write uh, about this, and I picked three different cosmic objects and wrote about them for astronomy magazine. And, and this was published in the, uh, the 1990s. I like the idea and it's like, there's plenty more things I could write about. Um, but I had a life and other things I had to do. And then, you know, 25 years later, so I finally mm -hmm. got around to pitching it to a publisher and they said, sure. And that's, uh, that's the book. Yeah. Well, and this is a show for science fiction fans and writers and, you know, obviously, this is something that comes up a lot if you're writing science fiction is you want to be able to describe what things look like through the eyes of a character who's experiencing them firsthand or, you know, at the viewport of a starship or something like that. So were you thinking as you were writing this, oh, this would be a great resource for science fiction writers? Actually, yes. And it wasn't you know, Machiavellian. It wasn't like me thinking, oh, I'll just write a book that I know will get used by Hollywood. Not like that. It was more along the lines of, I'm a huge science fiction dork. I, you know, I've watched every TV show just about the movies and everything and read tons of books. I love science fiction. And I've actually done some consulting for movies and TV shows and even a couple of uh, video games. And so I kind of know that process, at least of advising writers or, or, other folks who were involved in the entertainment business uh, of what the real science is and how to not let it interfere with the story. It's like, look, if you need to go to Alpha Centauri and you have a rocket, it's going to take you a thousand years. So, okay, we're going to use faster than light travel. Fine. That's not scientific reality, but if you're going to do that, let's talk about the science of it and make it self-consistent. It's that sort of thinking. Uh, and so, Doing that, having that experience, writing this book, one of the things I did, and similar to the last book I wrote called Death from the Skies, is I open each chapter with a short vignette, uh, basically a, a fictional tale of somebody, basically the reader, 
most of the time, it's in second person. So I say, you are at this planet. You are standing on the bridge of your starship. You are standing there watching a dust storm approach you on Mars. And that, that way, hopefully, it's even more of an immersive experience for the reader. So all of that kind of came together into my, you know, frustrated uh, uh, career as a science fiction writer uh, and, and as, as an astronomer with long experience uh, of these topics and putting that all together and making it uh, such that, yeah, this, this could be a reference for writers if they wanted to know what it's like, for example, to have a planet orbiting a, a binary star, two stars orbiting each other like Tatooine. So, so, so what is your career as a frustrated science fiction? Do you have a trunk novel or, or anything that you? <laughs> no, I, I wrote a lot of, uh, you know, terrible short stories when I was in high school, like every, every writer. Um, and, and hopefully most of those will never see the light <laughs> of day. Um, but I, I have written a few very, very short, I guess you'd call them microfic or even nanofic. These, you know, just a few paragraph stories. Those are a lot of fun. And I've actually, put a few of those. I have a newsletter uh, that I had that I send out and I, I sometimes will put those in there. It, it's not like this was ever going to be a career for me. It's not, not anything I ever really wanted. Um, but it is fun to think of these situations, not necessarily a full blown novel, but just a situation where a character is standing on Mars, you know, and what, what would they think? Would they get homesick? Or somebody on an alien starship looking out the, the portal, the porthole and saying, you know, there's the earth and we're leaving. What, what would you be thinking at that point? And, and really infusing the science in it or, or not, not in your face, like, well, the science says, blah, blah, blah. It's not like hmm. that. It's more just like letting, letting the science of this, letting the psychology of it uh, uh, percolate into the words. And I, I quite enjoy that. And I'd love to do it more, uh, which, you know, I will carve time out of my ridiculous <laughs> schedule right now. Don't don't ever publish a book if you ever want to get anything done for like a month. Yeah. So when so, the book so is published. So if, if people were to Google like Philip Plate fiction or something, could could they find those things in your newsletter or golly, I don't know. Um the newsletter is um badastronomy.substack.com. So I'm one of those substackers. And if you if you look up Phil Plate newsletter, you'll find it and then you can search the newsletters. You'll find them. I've got four or five of them, I think. Buried somewhere in there. I've I published 550 issues so far, so <laughs> it's a lot of a lot of science. I like writing about this stuff, so there you go. Yeah, well, no, and I definitely, I definitely hope you know Hollywood discovers this book, and because there's just so many cool things that I've never seen. You know, I've watched obviously a lot of science fiction movies and read a lot of science fiction books, and there was a lot of stuff in here I would really love to see. You know, given the big budget treatment that. Oh, thank you. That, you know, so, so for example, like the, the blue sunset on Mars and, um, you know, like looking at a globular cluster from a planet surface, like that kind of stuff would just be so great to see in a, uh, a big budget movie. Yeah. The, um, the, and again, thank you. Um, the blue sunset on Mars is, is one of those things that you don't expect, you know, on earth, the sky is blue during the day. And then when the sun sets around the sun, you can get red sky because of, haze and junk that's floating in the air tends to absorb or scatter away blue and green light. The The end process is that that light doesn't get to your eye, just the redder stuff does. And so the sun looks red and the sky looks red around around the sun. But on Mars, it's the opposite. There's all this uh, dust in the air and that dust is iron oxide. It's rust. And uh, it floats in the atmosphere and, and tints the sky red. But at sunset, it tends to scatter the blue light toward you. And so uh, during the day, the sky is red, but at sunset and sunrise, of course, as well, um, the sky is, is kind of blue. And uh, that's, that's just cool. And it's not what you expect. And it's the kind of thing you could throw into a movie without really explaining it and let people you know wonder about that sometimes. I kind of like that in a science fiction movie or something. And I see something and go, oh, I wonder why they did that. And then I'll go and look it up. And it's like, oh, <laughs> that was right. Good for them. Yeah. So that's that's a lot of fun. Yeah, well, and speaking of Mars, I, I wanted to ask you about this line because you say in the book, I grew up on movies of daring astronauts roaming Mars and they left their imprint on me. And I would have said in my experience, every Mars movie prior to Ridley Scott's The Martian was like absolutely terrible. Um, <laughs> so I'm just curious if you, um, you know, were you inspired by the awful movies or, or are there any uh, good ones that I um, <laughs> haven't come across yet? Well, let's be careful here. 
because there are uh, bad good movies and good bad movies. <laughs> uh, and um, in the 90s, a bunch of movies came out like uh, Red Planet and Mission to Mars. Um, they, they, Mission to Mars was a confused movie. Uh, it just had a lot of weird stuff in it, including the face on Mars. And I'm making air quotes around the face. <laughs> this this hill, that the, a mesa basically on Mars that looked like a face in early images. But I mean, every every scientist knew. Well, it doesn't really. It, it looks like a face in this shot. This is a low resolution fuzzy shot. And then, sure enough, you know, years later, when we had better instrumentation, we took a look at it. It's like, yeah, it's just a hill. But it, it, huge conspiracy theories about this thing being carved by Martians or whatever. And Mission to Mars was kind of based on that, and it was a not a great flick. And um, uh, Red Planet also had some issues. I had some issues with it. Um, but I, I, when I wrote that part of the book where I said these movies uh, inspired me, uh, I was talking about much older movies, like the stuff from the 60s. Because um, I grew up uh, in the 70s, more or less, when I started really getting into this stuff. And, uh, you know, Angry Red Planet, which is a bizarre, you know, uh, daring do heroes go to Mars and they find a gigantic alien that has a bat head on a spider's body. And <laughs> it's just really weird. Um, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Uh, uh, gosh, War of the Worlds um, with the Martians invading Earth, the original 1950s George Pal movie. Um, these are not the most accurate movies ever <laughs> made. Um, but when you're a kid, you know, you, you, you're sitting in front of the TV watching these things and just eating them up. Uh, and so that's the kind of stuff that really got me going um, and and loving science fiction movies, even even back then. And even now, I, I just rewatched some of these old movies. And it's like, well, this this isn't as terrible as you might expect. I mean, you have to put yourself in the mindset of this was filmed in 1963 or whatever. Uh, but as a kid, that really, yeah, that really inspired me. And, and Star Trek, uh, Star Wars to a lesser degree, The Expanse, um, fantastic uh, contemporary show now. Uh, these are all uh, wonderful. And even if, even if they don't get the science correct, uh, is it, it, that's, it's, it's okay because you're still inspiring people. And uh, if, if it's consistent and when they get the science right, uh, hey, bonus. <laughs> no, the, I, I love The Expanse. I'm always trying to talk it up as much as possible on this show. So if you're listening to this and you haven't uh, watched it, um, you know, I give it my strongest possible recommendation. Yeah, what are you thinking? Get on get on that. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, you um you you said you've you've done some science consulting. You I think you said you you did some like helped out with some shot for The Expanse or something like approaching Jupiter yeah. or <laughs> It's one of those things where it's like uh there's there's stuff where I've actually been deeply involved in, like there was a CBS show called Salvation that ran for two seasons, and I was right in the middle of all that, you know, talking about what how asteroids behave and what kind of science they can use to do this, that, and the other thing. With the Expanse, um, I actually uh, I know the, the the two authors who wrote the series of books and were producers on the show. I met them um, uh, consulting for something completely different, and and. Uh, Having, uh, I was involved with the Sci Fi Channel at that time, which is what originally aired The Expanse. So there was all this stuff going on, and yet none of that played into the fact that one day I got an email from one of their uh, uh, digital effects people saying, "Hey, we got a shot coming up where we're going close to Jupiter. What would that look like?" <laughs> so I just <laughs> I wrote a few paragraphs and then sent it away. And then when that episode aired, it was like, "Oh, look, they actually <laughs> they did all that. That was really cool." So it was just kind of funny to me to think that, uh, you know, you never know how, how this stuff's going to play out. Uh, I did some consulting for the movie Arrival, uh, the one with Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner. And that was a complete uh, uh, bizarre circumstance where, again, I was consulting with a production company on something completely different. And they said, hey, we've got this script for this movie coming out. Um, maybe, you know, if you want to take a look at it and check the science of it. And I did. And made a few notes and sent it back and forgot about it. And then years later, the movie comes out and I'm watching it. And then it's like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I remember this scene. <laughs> and uh, you know, so it was really cool. It's, just, it's, it's fun how that kind of stuff works out sometimes. And as a, like I said, as a scientist and a science fiction fan my whole life, being involved in that sort of stuff at any level is such a treat. And uh, it just makes my nerd heart sing. 
Yeah, yeah, and Arrival is one of my favorite movies of recent years. So sounds like it's you really had some, good. Some good luck uh, to to be involved with some of those, some of the best science fiction stuff that's come out recently. Yeah, it's not a whole lot. I have, I mean, I have friends who you know consulted for long running TV shows and a bunch of different stuff and all that. And and mine is more like you know catch as catch can. I, occasionally, I'll get a a question from somebody who's trying to pitch a, a, a pilot or something like that. But it's um, it's fun, especially when like like uh, uh, the arrival script. I and I read that and I went, oh golly, this is really good. <laughs> this <laughs> is really cool, uh, and. To see it on the screen and, and see how it's interpreted when at first I only just had the words on the page. And it gave me a, a much larger appreciation of, of actors and directors and how they, how they interpret this stuff because it was not at all like what I was picturing in my head or how I was seeing it going. It was so much better. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. But, but again, I mean, I really wish people or I, mean, I really hope people, you know, go to your book and to, to pull out some ideas because even like, I just feel like there's so much stuff they could do in science fiction that I never see. Like, I would just even love to see a, you know, a movie where there's a lunar colony and the people are actually kind of like bouncing around inside the base (laughs) because of the low gravity. Like every time I've ever seen anything like that in a movie, they're always just walking around like they're on Earth. And I I understand it's probably a giant pain to try to replicate that. But it's just the kind of thing like I would just love to see that um, depicted somewhere. Yeah, the... um there have been some attempts to do that and uh limited series on, on some streamers where they've actually had the actors on wires and uh, then they, you know, digitally edit them, edit them out later. And it's, it's cool. And I like it when they do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it adds a huge level of difficulty to a project uh, in the, in the expanse. Um, in fact, uh, in an early, early episode in the first season, there is a scene where the difference between uh, a, a, a gigantic rocket. It's a Martian battleship, actually, that is traveling through space and, and accelerating. It's actually using its engines, which creates a sort of artificial gravity. And those engines shut off and suddenly everybody's floating. And then a minute later, the engines come back on and nobody's floating and they all fall back down. And that actually played a huge, uh, it was a huge plot point in that particular scene. Uh, and it, it made me like cheer out loud. I mean, I literally went, you know, you know, fists raised because not only not only was that a great example of science, but it was it was integral to the plot. It actually worked out really well, and I was I was pretty pretty happy that they did that. Yeah, no, that's one of my all time favorite episodes of television ever. It's called CQB. It's episode four of The Expanse, and yes, uh, I always four, that's right. I always tell anyone, you know, because you know, I'll try to get people to watch The Expanse, and they'll watch like one or two episodes and like, oh, I don't know if it's for me or whatever. I'm like, no, you got to wa- like at least give it up till episode four. Like you have to watch episode four. If you don't like that, okay, fine. But like, don't stop until you get to episode four. You're thinking parallels mine um, because I thought the same thing. The first episode is tough. There's a lot of lingo and a lot of uh, uh, the, the belter slang, the, the people who, who live in the asteroid belt have their own sort of, of patois and it's very difficult to understand what's going on. And, uh, I, my wife is not a huge science fiction fan. Not, I mean, she likes science fiction, just not to the level, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that the nerds do. And, um, we watched one episode of The Expanse and she's like, I don't know. And I said, just watch, let's watch a couple more. And by episode four, she was hooked. So, you know, it's, it really is that good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and speaking of the asteroid belt, uh, one of the most striking moments in your book, I thought, was where you have sort of a character try to land on an asteroid and end up kind of like sinking into it and getting trapped. And that's something else I had never seen before um, in science fiction. Well, it's a brand new idea. Um, and and yeah, it's kind of weird to think about it. When, when I was a kid, uh, asteroids were, you know, gigantic sort of lumpy spheres with craters on them. And, you know, cause we didn't know. And so anytime you'd see them in a, in a movie or, you know, you'd get a, a little toy at the bottom of your cereal box, which they don't do anymore. And I'm a little upset about <laughs> that. Um, but you know, you'd, you'd get this little gray blob and it was supposed to be an asteroid, whatever. Um, but in fact, asteroids, uh, even small ones are, are quite different than that. And, uh, it wasn't until relatively recently, uh, maybe the 1980s, 1990s, when we started to realize that a lot of small asteroids are actually what we call rubble piles. They are like uh, just huge collections of of rocks 
from tiny ones, uh, smaller than pebbles, up to boulders that could be as big as a house or more. But they're not one solid object. It's not like a gigantic rock in space. It's like millions and millions of little rocks that are all held together by their own gravity. And uh, a lot of these uh, rocks are extremely fragile. And they, uh, if, you, if you held one in your hand, you could crush it easily. So it's not like a piece of quartz you find in your backyard. And uh, some of the space probes that we have sent uh, specifically to a couple of asteroids in the past few years um, have actually approached the asteroids slowly and grabbed samples of the surface to send back to Earth so that we can study them in a lab. You, you, spaceships are cool and all, but they, there's a limited amount of information, limited amount of uh, scientific instrumentation you can have on these things. So if you can bring these things back to Earth where you have labs all over the planet to study them, that's, that's good. And one of the probes actually was designed to touch the surface and then immediately basically blow its retro rockets, just basically nitrogen gas that would reverse its course and, and send it in the other direction. And it actually sank a substantial distance, you know, uh, like, like half a meter into the surface of this asteroid because the rocks just either were crushed or were pushed out of the way as this thing went in. So if you were on a spaceship, and uh, approaching a, an asteroid, say a mile across or something like that, it has negligible gravity. So you're in your spaceship and you're sort of just hanging off the side of this thing and you jump from your spaceship to the asteroid. It, it might not have a solid surface for you to land on. You might just sink up to your, uh, you know, up to and past the top of your spacesuit uh, just to be able to stand on this. And so I thought that was kind of a funny way to open that chapter hmm. with an astronaut basically stuck inside an asteroid. Uh, uh, a few meters down and his, his compatriot has to come and get him. Uh, and, and I, I, that amused me. So I thought I'd yeah. put that in there. Yeah. The description, I, I forget the exact wording, but it, it's, it says, you know, it's, it's less like the surface of the moon and more like a, like a landfill or, or something, you know, it's that kind of landscape of all this just loose stuff. Yeah. It, it looks like a construction site. If you've ever seen it, like a house being built or, or a, a, a subdivision suburb, um, where they basically tear up the land and there's all these rocks and stuff just lying around. That's kind of what it looks like. Um, but as far as composition goes, it's more like, you know, trying to jump into a giant box of, of packing peanuts. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just, it, it, there's stuff there. It just can't support your weight and just fall right to the bottom. Yeah. Another moment from the book that I think would just make such a great moment in a movie is you have this whole setup where you have a gondola in the upper atmosphere of Saturn where the pressure and the temperature is more congenial. And you say, um, fall out the window and you'll continue doing so for a long, long time. And I was kind of curious actually reading that. Are we talking like minutes or hours or days? Like how long, if say you had a spacesuit and you, you know, you could breathe and, and everything, how long before the pressure crushed you? Like how long would you fall for? That's a good question. Um, Saturn uh, is, is as wildly different from Earth as, as any planet you can imagine. It's, it's a gas giant. It, it's, it's, um, it's got a core deep down inside that's probably several times the mass of the Earth, and it's probably metals and rock. And then above that, there's so much pressure. There's gas above it, but there's so much pressure that's squeezed into a hot liquid. And then eventually, when you get far enough from the center, that turns into an atmosphere, and the atmosphere is uh, hundreds, if not you know, thousands of miles deep. And uh, Saturn is ten times the diameter of Earth, more or less. But the thing is, it's gravity. If you were floating in the clouds, the gravity is about the same as Earth's. You would you would hardly notice any difference. So if you were to to basically uh, get a balloon, hang from a balloon, and then jump uh, while floating in Saturn's atmosphere. I haven't calculated it, but you know, it, it takes just doing this, just winging this right now while we're doing this. Um, if you're in an airplane and you're a couple of miles up and you jump, um, and you free fall, you, 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 the, the atmospheric drag, the, the pressure of air will slow you to roughly a hundred miles an hour. And then it takes you a couple of minutes to fall. Then you, you know, engage your parachute and then it takes many, many more minutes to fall down. Um, in Saturn, Get if if you know if it takes a if you're moving at 100 miles an hour, which is about the same, um, you know, in an hour you'll be 100 miles deeper in the atmosphere, and at that point uh, the pressure would certainly get you. Um, I'd have to look at a at a at a scientific paper that's actually maps the pressure versus altitude of Saturn because I don't you know I don't have these numbers handy off the top <laughs> of my head, um, but you know certainly 
certainly in a couple of hours, I would, I would bet you'd be dead. And I would guess it would be less than that. Um, because the pressure just keeps increasing on earth. When you skydive, you hit the ground and you land on the ground and you're done and you're at one atmospheric pressure. Um, but with Saturn, there's no ground. So you just keep falling and falling and falling and eventually, uh, it'll crush you. I just don't, I don't know how long or how deep that would be. Um, but it, it wouldn't be days. You wouldn't be falling for days and it wouldn't be seconds, but it would be, you know, it would be the way you would die. You wouldn't starve to death before you were crushed and probably melted by the heat. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that would be a pretty cool scene in a movie. You know, someone's just following for hours and, you know, will they get rescued or won't they, you know? I'd ha- yeah, I'd have to do the math. Um, it would be harder in Jupiter because Jupiter has uh, two and a half times Earth's gravity. And so you'd be falling a lot faster. Uh, and Saturn would be about like Earth. And Uranus and Neptune, I don't know. I mean, their gravity isn't that much stronger than Earth's, but uh, I don't know how much how much the atmospheric pressure increases but yeah that would be kind of a cool thing it's like you've got to have a rescue uh ship or something come and get you how would they even find you and if they did you know how would they get you and how long would they have yeah call hollywood dear hollywood (laughs) i have an idea (laughs) yeah hopefully some high-powered film producers are listening to this uh, podcast yeah right um, I mean, another thing I thought was such a cool aspect of the, of the book was your whole discussion of uh, binary, you know, planets orbiting binary stars and, you know, the multiple, you know, uh, I guess in some configurations you would have a eclipse every 10 hours and stuff like that. Um, again, and again, something that I think would be so great in science fiction that I, I can't think of ever having seen before. Yeah, it's never, to my knowledge, and I've seen a lot of stuff, it's never been treated as anything other than, oh, look, Luke Skywalker sees two suns setting, you know, over Tatooine, which is neat. Uh, and actually, that scene was was pretty good in the original Star Wars movie. Um, some people call it a new hope, but those people <laughs> are young. Um, people my age call it Star Wars. Um, and and in fact, that scene is pretty good. Uh, the the in canonically, if you look up sort of the. Uh, the Star Wars on the wikis and everything to talk about what is canon, what isn't, what's actually uh, considered to be official. Uh, those are both sun-like stars and uh, uh, they're orbiting each other relatively close together. And I use that as a jumping off point to talk about, well, what would that be like? How far would a planet have to be? I mean, you've, you've got Earth uh, uh, 93 million miles from the sun. But if you had two suns, you'd have to be farther out or else you'd burn up. It would be very much, much hotter. So the first thing to do is calculate how far out does it have to be? Um, what would that be like? How close together are those stars? If they're too far apart and you're orbiting too close, the gravitational situation isn't stable. And so the planet won't be able to orbit those stars very well. The stars have to be far enough away that they kind of act as a single object gravitationally. So you can orbit them without uh, uh, getting flung out into intergalactic space or interstellar space. Uh, so I had to think about all that stuff. And then it's like, oh, if they're close enough that they orbit each other every 16 hours, 20 hours, whatever, what would that look like from the planet? And yeah, you'd have one star passing in front of each other um, every few hours. And that would drop uh, the amount of light you get on the planet. It would drop the temperature. And, and that was something I really struggled with because I'm not an environmental scientist. Um, but I was able to, to, to work out that math and say, uh, how much, how much less heat would the planet receive? Well, it's receiving roughly half as much heat because one star is blocked. But how does that translate into temperature? And, um, if, uh, you know, during a solar eclipse, for example, um, when the, when the moon blocks the sun in the sky, it cools off a lot. You know, your source of heat is gone. With a binary star, you're losing half of your heat. You know, there's still a star there shining in your sky. But it turns out, yeah, you, the temperature can drop quite a bit. It could get chilly. It was really fun to write about that. Well, I, I thought this, these details were so cool. So I'll just read. You say, um, would some plants on our S-type binary planet evolve to thrive on primary sunlight and other secondary light? Trees could develop thick insulating trunks that would protect them. Their leaves could curl up for insulation, parentheses, perhaps triggered by sudden drops in temperature, or be made of materials less prone to freeze. So I love, I just, I just love all that cool oh, sci- thank you. sci-fi stuff. And it, 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 it was, um, I have to say, I, I was extrapolating a lot, just sort of speculating. I, that, that wasn't based too much on science. I mean, it was, science was a starting point because there are plants on Earth 
that um, are uh, evolved for hot temperatures, like trees that have needles instead of leaves because uh, you don't want to get them too hot. And so the needles are, are more efficient at, at rejecting heat, things like that. And so it, uh, it, was, it was fun to think about and speculate over. Um, I wouldn't take it as, uh, you know, like a textbook, um, but it, it was interesting just to think, you know, how, what, what effects would this have? Especially, you know, when you look at Earth and, you know, it's where we live and we're used to it, but for half the time, it's dark. This planet is big and it spins and half the time you're, you have the sun up in the sky and half the time you don't. That's not necessarily a given. There are planets that may not spin that quickly or spin even faster. And so the temperatures may not, uh, you don't get as much of a chance to heat, uh, the surface up before sunset. And life evolves for that. You know, we go to sleep at night. Uh, plants switch their metabolisms at night and do different things than they do during the day. And so all this life has evolved to adapt to this very simple but profound fact that our planet spins. And so when you think about that, it's like, well, the planet doesn't have to spin like that. And even if it does, there could be other factors in the sky. And the example you gave, um, you know, we're talking about Tatooine, for example, those stars are close together in the sky. They're, they're, they're orbiting each other tightly and they're far away. But you could also have a, a, a different type of planet that orbits one star in a binary where the two stars are very far apart. And so your planet basically has this primary star in the sky that acts like the sun, but there's this other star. Uh, and that star sometimes is up during the day and sometimes up during night. <laughs> uh, and that's going to change profoundly uh, how life on a planet is going to evolve. I mean, the one science fiction story that did this discussion did kind of put me in mind of was Nightfall by Isaac Asimov. And sure. He, he imagines a planet that uh, orbits, I forget, like five or six or seven um, stars. And, right. uh, and so they never, so it's never night on this planet except once every thousand years by some weird conjunction of uh, the yeah, stars there's an, and things. Yeah, there's an eclipse. I think another planet in the system blocks the light of, of, some of the stars when the stars happen to be eclipsing each other. So for a short period of time, it's completely dark when these, these, uh, these, uh, well, they're, they're, they're basically human like aliens yeah. who live on this planet. Uh, they, they're used to having daytime all the time. And so it actually has uh, a civilization uh, ending uh, uh, results because of that. And that's generally considered one of the best science fiction stories ever written. And, I have issues with it. I mean, I it, not not with the science. It's just I don't think it's the greatest. It's a cool story and it's really imaginative, but uh, I think there are other ones that are better. But um, the idea of a planet that's orbiting multiple stars is interesting. And you know what what would happen? And uh, you can have a planet easily orbiting two stars and orbiting three or having three stars in a system. There are ways to do that as well. You could have a star like the sun with a planet around it like Earth. And then much farther out, you might have a binary pair of, say, red dwarfs, which are very low mass and dim stars. Their gravity wouldn't affect the planet. And that is technically a three-star system, a trinary system. Uh, when you get to higher order systems like five and six stars, that gets tougher. <laughs> the the gravity, gravity gets to be a little bit of a problem, and uh, those systems tend not to be stable over the long run. But there are also clusters of stars, stars that have, or, or systems where there are hundreds or thousands of stars orbiting each other. And if you go out at night, uh, you can see some of these. They're like the, the, the head of Taurus, the bull, is a V-shaped uh, asterism, a collection of stars. That's actually a cluster. And right next to it is the Pleiades, which a lot of people have heard of, the Seven Sisters. That's a cluster. And uh, these systems can live for a long time, tens or hundreds of millions of years. You could have planets orbiting those stars. And there's another kind of cluster called a globular cluster. And these are roughly spherical clusters of hundreds of thousands or even a million stars. Uh, and uh, having a planet orbiting a star in that was so cool to me that I wrote a whole chapter. And as a matter of fact, it was one of the original three topics I covered in my article for Astronomy Magazine in the 90s. Because when you go outside at night from the darkest site on Earth, you'll see a few thousand stars in the sky. And it looks like the sky is just covered in stars. But in a globular cluster, you could have 50 times that many stars in the sky. And a lot of them would be so bright um, because these are, are 
our red giant stars or other stars that are very luminous and very bright and quite close to this planet uh, because clus- these clusters aren't that big, um, that you could read by them. They would cast shadows on the ground. And so you could have thousands of stars like that in your sky. And uh, I can't even imagine. Well, I mean, I, I can imagine what that would be like. And, be, and I wrote a, a chapter in the book about it. But to actually put yourself there and actually really experience it and think about what that is, that's hard um, because it's so outside of our experience. Um, but it would <laughs> that'd be something I'd like to see, let me tell you. Yeah. Well, and actually, speaking of globular clusters, I wanted to ask you because uh, I was wondering, reading this book, do you think that astronomers are particularly bad at naming things? Because you <laughs> say, uh, in what's a rarity in astronomy, the name given to these objects is actually descriptive. Uh, yeah. Wait, later, there's a, a discussion of planetary nebula, uh, which are not named because they have planets in them, but because they kind of look like planets through old telescopes and stuff. So right. it, it doesn't seem like the best uh, reason to, to give them that particular name. Well, that one, that that's a whole story and I won't go into it too much, but yeah, they, they just look like little green discs through small telescopes. Um, and so they called them planetary nebulae, but they don't have anything to do with planets. And then we found out later that um, the stars that form these nebulae, basically they're blowing out winds of gas as they die. Um, if they have a big planet orbiting close in, that can actually whip the star around and, and mix the gas up and create these amazing and beautiful shapes. If you if you look up a planetary nebula, uh, uh, Hubble has taken images of dozens of these things, and they're gorgeous. But the shapes of these things are actually sculpted by planets orbiting the star. And so the name is kind of appropriate, but not always. And yeah, it's it's funny, you know, a globular cluster is a cluster of stars shaped like a globe. So in you know that's that's not bad. Um, but when you think about it, we, we talk about the Milky Way galaxy, but the word galaxy literally means Milky Way. It, it's the way <laughs> of milk. Via Galacta is, is what that the original term was. Now we realize, oh, galaxies are a separate type of object. Uh, and so when you talk about the Milky Way galaxy, you're kind of saying the Milky Way, Milky Way. Uh, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And don't even get me started on, on exoplanet names because- but is it just, do you think, because our knowledge has increased so much or like are other scientists better at coming up with names or like how do, <laughs> how, how do we find ourselves in this situation? Well, a, a lot of it is historical. Um, astronomy is a very old science and things got named a certain way, way back when. And then we realized later, it's like, yeah, maybe this wasn't a great name. <laughs> and uh, I mean, when you look at like um, stellar classifications, the, the way we classify stars, um, the 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 most massive and hottest stars are called O stars, and the slightly s- less luminous and cooler stars are called B, and then A, F, and, and uh, O, B, A, fine, gal, or, or guy, kiss me is the old expression, and there's a bunch of different mnemonics to remember that. But they're all out of order, and you're like, why are they out of order? And it's like, well, because 100 or more years ago when we started classifying stars, they ordered them a different way. They did it alphabetically, but the way they did it turned out not to be the best way to do it. And then later on, somebody came along and said, really, these stars are the ones that should be first, these O stars, and it gets out of order. And this is what happens. Uh, and so we get these names, which, or, or especially in catalogs, where you've got like the Henry Draper catalog of stars. And so you might have a star called HD169552. And that's what everybody calls it. And then they find a planet around it, which they signify by the letter B. So now you've got, you know, HD alphabet soup of numbers and letters, and it's a mess. So, but it, at least we're consistent about it now. And we, somebody said, let's, you know, let's, let's come up with a, a way of naming these things that at least uh, will make some sort of sense and isn't uh, out of order or anything like that. <laughs> Do you think there ever might be like a constitutional convention sort of thing where they're just like, all right, screw it. We're just renaming everything in a way that makes sense uh, from here on out. Uh, it, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, it, it? There have been some things like that. The International Astronomical Union, which is a worldwide union of astronomers, um, is sort of the official keeper of things like that. And uh, you can go to their website and find the rules. And for a lot of things, um, a lot of the rules are messed up because of, of historical reasons, just that we're still doing them that way. But a lot of things like the way we name asteroids and comets these days, when you discover an asteroid, there's a, there's a, a rule. And, um, if you look at the name of, for example, a comet, and it might be, um, 
P slash 2023 A5, and then in parentheses, Johnson. And it means that's a periodic comet discovered in 2023. A5 tells you uh, what time of year it was discovered. And then in parentheses, the name of the observatory, the person who discovered it. And that works. Uh, the problem is like, for example, with supernovae, stars that explode, we used to see a dozen of those a year. And so they would just call them the the year with a letter after it. So like I studied <laughs> supernova 1987A, the first supernova in 1987. Now we're discovering thousands of them a year. And you might have supernova 2022 AXDBY. <laughs> and, and like trying to figure out what number that is, you know, in what order or when that was discovered is a pain. But our technology gets better and we get better at finding stuff and our names have a hard time keeping up. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you about this. So as a science fiction writer, uh, I was a little intimidated, honestly, by this paragraph. You say, uh, the Uh Trappist-1 planets form a resonance chain in which all of the planets orbit the star in near-perfect whole number ratios. Planet B orbits eight times for every five times C does. Planet C orbits five times for every three times D does. Moving outward, the ratios are three to two, three to two, four to three, and three to two again for the outermost two planets. So do I need to understand that if I'm going to create a fictional uh, solar system for a Probably science fiction not. story? <laughs> it's, you know, it, it, if you're a science fiction writer or you're making a, a TV show or whatever, you don't have to pay attention to all the science. On the other hand, what I like to do, especially when I'm talking to writers, is, is give them the science so at least they have it and say, look, this may not play into anything you have, but it could inform something else. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you've got a rescue attempt that's coming, it may only be able to come every, every four days because, uh, you know, their, their, their launch windows are every four days because the planets have to be in a certain configuration. Uh, and it turns out, Hey, you know, if, if I saw that in a movie, I'd be like, all right, sure. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I will accept that. Um, but if you want to ignore it, that's fine as well. But in this case, um, it's similar to music where, uh, middle C, is a, a vibration. I mean, all notes are vibrations of air. And middle C has a, has a frequency of 440 vibrations per second. And any, any other note that vibrates in a simple ratio of that, like 220, 880, those are also the note C, just at different octaves. But then a third and a fifth are fractions of that that, that um, uh, match the frequency in certain whole number ratios. And those to our ears are pleasing. Whereas dissonance is where the, 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 the fractions don't work out that well. And it's, it's sort of the same thing with these planets. And we see this even in our own solar system, Jupiter's moons orbit in simple fractions of each other. If you take the innermost moon and call that one orbit, the next one orbits half as, uh, it takes twice as long. And the next one out takes four. And I, I can't remember the ratios all exactly. Um, but that happens a lot in this, in the systems. And it's just the way gravity works. They, it, it can sort of self-reinforce these orbital periods until they become simple fractions of each other. And yeah, those are called resonances and they're like harmonies in, in notes. And that's in all solar systems or only if the planets are a certain, like have a certain closeness or something? Um, I wouldn't, I, I, I can't say it's in every solar system in the universe, of course. Um, and we do see it in our solar system, but not every moon does this. Uh, or every planet, um, like, like Venus and Earth have a kind of a simple ratio and it's not really understood why, as far as I know, but Mercury has a totally different one. Uh, and so if the planets are close enough, they can affect each other gravitationally and sort of force each other into these, uh, these harmonic, <laughs> uh, orbital periods. Um, but it doesn't always have to happen. Do you know if there's any software where you could like create your own solar system and it would make sure all the, I don't know, all the gravity was correct in the orbits and everything? Yeah, there's quite a few. Um, professional astronomers use some. Um, I can't remember the name. I used one for a while to help somebody with a, a novel they were trying to figure out. Um, and I wanted to figure out if the planetary system they had come up with was stable. Um, but yeah, there's... Um, well, Kerbal, I know, is for uh, space travel. And I don't know if it does solar system dynamics. But uh, space engine... And, uh, oh gosh, what are the other ones? Of course, now that you ask me, I'm blanking. <laughs> and I was just reading about them because I'm trying to, I was trying to figure something out. And, um, in fact, I was using for, um, the chapter on Saturn and the moon and, uh, one other, 
I was trying to uh, figure out certain things and I wound up turning to Stellarium, which is a, a, a free planetarium software that you can go and, and actually sort of what would it look like if you were standing on the moon? What would the earth look like? And, 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 and all of that, and you can, it'll show you. So that, and that kind of stuff's really fun to play with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'll definitely, I'll definitely look into, look into some of those. Um, I also have a question. So I had an idea for a science fiction story in which, uh, somebody ends up in a black hole, like a very large black hole. So they don't instantly die. And then somebody else uh, sends them a message. And I know a message can't get out of a black hole, but I was thinking maybe a message could get into a black hole. But then there's this line in your book where you say, uh, the same is true for light from distant objects. It won't be able to catch you, so you never see it, which made me wonder if maybe you can't receive a message inside a black hole either. Yeah. Um That chapter was uh, a nightmare because <laughs> <laughs> it's just – it's. If you fall into a black hole, a lot of weird stuff happens that is not intuitive. And if you try to figure it out, uh, even by going online and reading what professional people say, you get a lot of contradictory answers. And there's this idea that you fall into a black hole. And as you fall in, your time slows down compared to time outside the black hole. The movie Interstellar deals with this. One, they, they, they visit a planet. That's so close enough to a black hole that, you know, an hour on this planet is like seven years on earth. So that was, that was kind of neat. Um, and that's true. And if you fall into a black hole, your time, uh, eventually basically grinds to a halt compared to somebody far away from the black hole. And so you think, well, if, if my time stops, then I would see all infinite time coming at me outside the universe. If I were looking away from the black hole, I would see the universe's clock running faster and faster and faster till I see everything. And it turns out eh, it's not, doesn't really work that way. And uh, I had I actually had to wind up talking to a, a professional black hole guy, and, Andrew Hamilton, a friend of mine, uh, who's also here in uh, Boulder, Colorado. And he had to walk me through it. And even then I was I got really confused because it's <laughs> tough. The thing is, to answer your question, Objects that are really, really far away, that's true. So some distant galaxy, its light's never going to reach you. You're going to fall through that black hole and get killed by it long before that light gets a chance to reach you. But if somebody else is hanging just outside that black hole and sends like a a, a message via laser beam or something to you, I, and I'm thinking of this, and as I'm sitting here saying this, I'm probably completely wrong. And I'll get <laughs> a ton of email from people saying, no, you idiot, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think that... Uh, if you send a laser beam, the laser will be accelerated. It can't go faster than light. And you're traveling at the speed of light when you hit the event horizon. When you fall in, you're still accelerating, but the law, oh gosh, yeah, I'm, see, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think this through. And now, now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm not sure. Um, it's, it, it seems to me that if somebody is just outside the event horizon, that, that sort of what you can think of as the surface of a black hole, not really, but you can think of it that way. If they shoot a laser beam at you, that would catch up to you. Um, because it's, it's, it, you would still see it moving toward you at the speed of light because the speed of light is, is always the speed of light, no matter where you are, or what you're doing. Um, if somebody's falling in after you, they'll never catch up to you. But if you're in a rocket, you could accelerate and maybe catch up to that person. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. And, and this, and this is the problem is I get twisted up into, uh, rational knots trying to figure this stuff out. So the answer is, would you like to use your phone a friend? Uh, Yeah. Let me call, let me call Dr. (laughs) Hamilton and find out. I mean, the answer to your question is, I don't know. And this stuff makes me nuts trying to figure it out. Uh, uh, I, I never, took like those classes in graduate school. And if I had, I probably would have walked into the sea anyway. Um, but it, it, the, the, the bottom line here is that, yeah, it's pretty confusing and weird and not what you expect. And if you can survive falling into a black hole, um, even a gigantic one, uh, it takes about 20 minutes to fall from the event horizon to the center. And, uh, and that's kind of irrespective of, of how big it is. It's always just winds up being about 20 minutes. And uh, yeah, and then then you're dead anyway. So if you're writing a science fiction story, they have 20 minutes to talk to you or get you out if there's some way to do that, which there isn't. Mm-hmm. Well, my idea would, would be basically like people at the end of, end of their lives could go into a black hole or probably it would work just as, just as well to go close to a black hole and then get all the news updates for everything that happens in the future. So they kind of know how history turns out before they die. <laughs> um, 
I think that would work up to a point. They could, you could have like an orbiting habitat just outside the event horizon and uh, its time would be going really slow compared to what's going on there. There are other issues with that. Um, but uh, I guess theoretically, if I read something like that, I'd go, okay, accept <laughs> that at least for the, at least for the purposes of the plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or I could just invent a magical uh, Ansible type communication device or something like that. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> a time machine might be easier. <laughs> Um, all right, cool. So we're pretty much out of time. Um, I guess, yeah, that, and that pretty much, that's all the stuff I, I really, really wanted to get through. So, uh, so we're good. Oh, do great. you have, um, do you have any other, uh, final thoughts you want to mention or, um, uh, any other projects you're working on that you want to let people know about? Yeah, sure. Um, so the book is called Under Alien Skies. You can find it at booksellers everywhere. I also narrated the audio book, which is something I'd never done before. And I had a great time doing that. That was, that was cool. Um, I, I don't have any big projects right now because this book is all consuming (laughs) because when you, when you publish a book, there's interviews and writing and all kinds of stuff. So it's, I don't have any time for anything else, but I am still writing my newsletter at badastronomy.substack.com. I'm writing a semi-regular column for Scientific American, which I'm thrilled about, a magazine I've respected since I was a kid. Uh, and if I have anything else coming up, uh, you can, you know, follow me on social media or on my newsletter and I will always announce it there. Yeah. All right. It's been so great talking to you, Phil. And again, like if there are any Hollywood producers uh, listening to this, like at least for me as a science fiction fan, this is the kind of stuff I want to see in movies is this, you know, interesting, hard, you know, science informed, hard SF stuff that I've never seen before in a, in a visual medium. Uh, I thought, and I I think if, you know, if you're a science fiction author, you got to pick up this book and, you know, give us some stories about, you know, planets orbiting binary stars and, junk field asteroids and <laughs> stuff like that. So, well, that's, that's high praise and that's, that, that would be a dream come true. So that's that I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right. So we've been speaking with Philip plate about his new book under alien skies. So Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Philip plate for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.